Good morning. Just had to get my bits together this morning with my little extra table. How are you today? Good. Oh, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. I feel as though worship has just flooded ahead this morning. And if your heart is not yet breaking for some of the things that we've heard about across this teaching theme, then may I invite you um, as we start today just to say to Jesus, I give you permission. I give you permission because all I can tell you is that in the preparation of this message, mine has been completely broken again for an issue that has already been breaking my heart for for years, but on a whole new level. And I want to pray as we start. Lord, we can hear your anthem for the poor and broken. It's the cry unspoken of our generation. Let the cry resound in us. Let it echo through the earth. Let your church Rise up at last and let justice flow like a flood. Let the cry resound in us. Let it echo through the earth. Let us stand for righteousness and let justice flow like a flood through us. Amen. So my message this morning is entitled, For Such a Time as This, and I'm going to transport you back to when I was an eight-year-old girl, and I auditioned for my very first school play. Some of you have heard this story. Well, I remember that my friend Caroline Wright and I, we had a little bit of a probably unhealthy competition taking place as eight-year-old girls, and there was one role in the school play that we both very much wanted, probably along with every other eight-year-old girl, to be fair, and that was the role of princess. Oh, yes. I could see myself swanning around the palace in the school play, dressed in some beautiful Disney-like flowing costume, and I was ready for that role. Yes, I was. And so when I got into the audition, drama's not really my thing, but I didn't realize it at the age of eight, I gave it the best I had. And then it was just a case of watching and waiting. And the day came when up onto the notice board, handwritten as it was back in the day, there was a list of who had got which part. And Caroline Wright and I, holding hands, went over excitedly to see where we were. Imagine my surprise when not only did I see next to Caroline Wright's name the role of princess, but I then scrolled down to find my own name. And can you imagine what I was cast as in the school play? I mean, you wouldn't even believe one of these could exist in a school production, but I was a TV aerial. I was a TV aerial. I am not kidding you. I was dressed from head to toe in silver. I know, Eddie, exactly. In silver sacking. I had silver face paint and I had to stand like this on a little mezzanine that they had. It was a very elaborate school production. I did go to private school until the age of 11. On a little mezzanine next to my friend Katie Rayleigh, who was a weather vane. 
And I can still remember the song that I had to sing. Yes, I was a singing TV aerial, no less. I'm not going to grace you with it now because there isn't time. There are more pressing things to attend to. But listen, today I want to talk about us being created for such a time as this. And I want to revisit the book of Esther. And you know what? The thing is, I was so fixated on that role of princess. And if I'm honest, certainly looking back to the way that the book of Esther has been unpacked for me over the years, I would say that too often we want Esther to be that Disney princess. We want her to be that contestant in a beauty pageant. We love the story of rags to riches, zero to hero. But I don't believe that that is the heartbeat or the takeaway message from the book of Esther. And I think that if we are calling Queen Esther or likening her to some kind of Disney heroine, we have to understand that maybe it was a rags to riches story. Maybe it was a zero to hero story from a kingdom perspective, but it certainly was not a happily ever after story for Queen Esther. It certainly was not a glamorous life in the palace for Queen Esther. In fact, this book touches on major issues of justice when it comes to the rights of women. And I want to unpack that this morning. And at moments, I know it's going to make us feel uncomfortable, but I want us to stay the course this morning, church, because this really, really matters. You see, Esther is in fact a deeply harrowing book about huge justice-related themes. It's a book about sexism and suppression. It's a book about debauchery and dignity. It's a book about exploitation and equality. It's a book about silence and secrecy, strength and subversion, silence breaking, self-sacrifice and standing up for others. You'll remember that back at the beginning of June, I was sitting around the table with 60 women leaders at an international leaders consultation And we were there to talk about the opportunities and the challenges that women face today across the world. And there were presentations from every continent. And they were backed up with research. And my heart, once again, was broken as I sat in a room and listened to what our sisters face day in, day out, on other sides of the world, but also in this nation and in this country. And I'm going to hopefully weave in some of those statistics and some of uh, the stories that I heard to help us to earth this today in our context as well as thinking about the book of Esther. So let's start with the major theme of sexism and suppression. Now, Esther was a Jewish girl living in exile She was orphaned. She lived with her cousin, Mordecai, who adopted her as, I suppose, a father-like figure. She had a difficult start from the beginning. But the backdrop of the Jews living in exile is that women were hugely oppressed. And actually, the Jewish people as a whole were hugely oppressed as part of that society. But women were the least of the least. 
They were objects, they were pawns, they were possessions, they were property. This was a culture where patriarchy dominated. And when I've heard it spoken about so often, Queen Vashti seems to be juxtaposed with Esther. Queen Vashti, the insubordinate queen. Esther, the good queen. But I want to put it to you that as I have read this book again and again, I have come to understand that it's not as simple as that. You see, God is drawing parallels, but they're not in the obvious places and they're not necessarily in the places that we have been taught they are. Let's take a look at King Xerxes. He's the guy in charge of Persia at that time. He's the emperor. And do you know what? He had given himself a title which translated as king of kings. That's a dangerous game, isn't it? Because there's only one king of kings as far as I know, and his name is Jesus. But this guy, he was all about the outward show. Let's read together from Esther 1. So King Xerxes, is, he's, he's basically begun to party for six months. And it says this, the celebration lasted six months. He's invited officials from all over the place. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth and glory of his empire. When it was all over, the king gave a special banquet for all the palace servants and officials from the greatest to the least. I want you to remember that. From the greatest to the least. 180 days of partying. That's what this man has already had before this next seven, right? And he's invited people from everywhere. And he basically wants to show off his glory. It's all about the externals. It's the finest gold. It's the finest wine. The appearances are absolutely incredible. But it's interesting, isn't it? that when he goes on to then celebrate the officials and the servants within the palace, so he's done all the external stuff and now this is the internals, that his own wife, the queen, she doesn't get a seat at the table. What does that tell you? What does it tell me? Well, it's a really, really important indicator of the level of patriarchy and sexism that is at operation here. Because if he has invited everybody within the palace from the greatest to the least, that tells you that the queen is not some kind of Disney heroine with loads of power and strength and opportunity. It tells you that she is not even regarded to be the least within the palace. She doesn't even get to come and be a part of that. In fact, we find out later in verse 9 that Queen Vashti, she had to give her own banquet for the women. So the women are entirely segregated. I just want to put this into context, and if we have children in the room today, I want to say I'm going to be touching on some very serious topics. So you may want to take your child out to the creche, or you may want to make sure that they are focused on a device. I'm giving you that as a disclaimer. It's your parenting decision, but we're touching on some serious themes today. So, the queen is kept in a harem. What's a harem? It's guarded and attended to by eunuchs. Why eunuchs? Well, because they don't pose any kind of physical threat to the king's property and possessions. She has no voice. She has no invitation. She has no power. Only when she's called upon is she allowed to come and be anywhere near her husband. 
this guy is all about displaying his own glory. And against that, I think the Bible is so clever because, and the text is so clever because although we never really hear Vashti speak, and I'll touch on that in a minute, it's so clear where the heart of God is going with all of this. Because on the one hand, you have this powerful, macho, patriarchal man who is obsessed with his own status. On the other hand, you have a queen who has zero rights, zero authority. And there's one moment that's relayed. But before that, the king gets to seven days of this drunken party. And it's, the Bible tells us he's pretty merry on wine by now. And he thinks to himself, I want everyone to see how beautiful my wife is. So he summons her to come. Because, verse 11 tells us, he wanted all the men to gaze on her beauty. Can we just stop and think about that for a moment? I don't know if you were sold the whole beauty pageant thing, and I am going to touch on that a little bit later. But this was no beauty pageant that Esther was involved in later on. This is a moment where this guy is bringing out his own wife for everybody else to observe in, I would imagine, a fairly intimate way. That's disgusting. That's depraved. That's debauched. He is a bad king. He doesn't care who he degrades, how he demeans, how he devalues or discards in the process. He is the epitome of debauchery, the image of greed, the image of the power-hungry, greedy dictator. I wonder if that reminds us of anything in our society today. I wonder if we think about the plight of women when it comes to pornography, how they are objectified, how they are displayed for other men to see. Whether we can draw any parallels between what happened way back when in a different culture to what happens today in 2019 across our planet. We don't care who we degrade, who we demean at times. I, I looked on my smartphone at the news this morning on the way into church and I was absolutely horrified to read on the front page a story about a girl whose life was ended by another individual. But this particular individual chose at every stage of what he was doing to post images and captions on social media. Listen, church, I'm sorry to be sharing things that are so brutal. But at times it can be lost in the melee of our own little bu bubble to understand that what Queen Vashti experienced, women are experiencing day in and day out. And yes to the men. I know that some of these issues are not limited to women. I understand that. But I want to tell you that as Bev spoke about equity last week, which is the difference between equality and equity, women are not starting at the same position as men. We have not had the equal start, and that's why it's an important issue for us to be talking about as church. So we know what happens, or most of us will know what happens. Queen Vashti at this moment refuses to come. Now, it's interesting because she refuses to come, and we're told that via an intermediary. We don't know what she said, and we don't know her reasons. We don't know her reasons. There could have been any number of reasons. 
I'm aware that we still have children in the room, so I'm not going to go any further with that, but there could have been any number of reasons why she refused, but it's always been portrayed that she refused because she was being disobedient and standing up for herself, and I don't have a problem with that. If she was, then it's just another way of showing the subversion in the text of how actually this book is turning conventional values on its head, but we don't know why she refused. But what we do know is this, At that moment, in fact, up to that moment, the silence is deafening. We don't hear anything from Vashti. She's summoned. She sends a message back, so she's spoken for in terms of her refusal. And then get this, the king approaches a group of men, and they all sit around and they decide her fate. Her future is decided in a room where she has no opportunity to speak for herself. Let's check out verses 16 to 18. It says this. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every official and citizen throughout your empire. In other words, in defying you, she's defied all of us. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wife of every one of us, your officials throughout the empire, will hear what the queen did and will start talking to their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to the contempt and anger throughout your realm. Can you hear like the fear-mongering in that? Can you hear the control in that? Let's keep going. So, if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from your presence and that you choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout your vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The only voice missing at this point is Vashti's. And the silence echoes. It's deafening. She's not allowed to speak for herself. She's summoned. She's spoken for. She's spoken about. And then... She's spoken as a representative of every other woman in the empire. And in that room, a bunch of powerful men decide this woman's future. And I know today that might seem a million miles away from our experience. But if we look closer, there are traces of this right here on our doorstep. The silence is deafening. Some statistics for you. In 2015, women were finally allowed the vote in Saudi Arabia. And in June 2018, Saudi Arabia finally began allowing some women to drive. Wow. In Yemen, a woman is considered as half a witness. A female testimony in a court of law isn't taken seriously unless it's banned by a man, backed by a man's testimony. A woman is not recognized as a full person before the court. Women can't testify at all in cases of adultery, libel, theft, or sodomy. Women can't leave their home 
without their husband's permission. In Malta, if a man who abducts a woman intends to marry her, his sentence is automatically reduced. If the man marries his victim after the abduction, he's subsequently exempt from any and all prosecution and punishment. Are we listening to this church? Laws that allow women to be beaten are not uncommon across the world. There are 46 countries that have no laws protecting women from domestic violence. Women in many countries are not allowed to pass on citizenship in the same way as men. Even in the United States, men and women are viewed differently under the law. A child born out of wedlock to a foreign mother and American father has a grueling process to become an American, American citizen. And there are more requirements to meet if the mother's not a US citizen and the father is. One of the things that absolutely undid me as I sat around the table at that consultation was a moment where we divided into continent groups and we were invited to sit at tables with the continent to which we mainly felt called and where we were expressing our leadership. And at the end of that, we, or during that, we talked about some of the opportunities women face, so some of the positive things. We talked about some of the challenges and what solutions we could offer. And as my African sisters fed back, they said something that absolutely undid me. I didn't know about it. They said that basically, women who have been widowed in many African countries do not have a right to keep their land, even if it's been in their family for generations. It's seized from them. And that basically means that they can't earn an income for their children. They can't provide. And so they're plunged into this life of poverty. And I just sat there and thought, we could do something about that. We could do something about that. That's not right. Imagine going through the heartache of losing your spouse and then losing your home and your security and everything that's yours. It's not right, church. All over the world, women are silenced, women are suppressed, and sexism continues. Let's keep going. This is also a book about slavery and sexual exploitation, and we're going to move into chapter two now. And if you were in kids' church, it was probably presented to you slightly this way. As a beauty pageant, the queen, uh, the little Esther was invited to the palace for a beauty contest, and hurrah, she was selected. She was the most beautiful, and she became queen. Technically true. But let's take a look at the reality of this. You see, the advisors say to the king, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Okay, can we just stop there? Beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at Caesar. Hegai, the eunuch in charge, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who pleases you most will be made queen instead of Vashti. And as a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem. Beauty pageant? No. 
These are young girls. Girls, they're just girls. They're forcibly removed from their homes and their families. The king's agents distribute across the provinces to, to pick those who are ripe. They're basically abducted and trafficked into a life of sexual exploitation. They're placed into a harem. They're forced to undergo beauty treatments. Well, let's think about that for a moment. They're already beautiful. What could it be for? Well, it's for the one night that they're going to spend with the king. And night after night, the king spends the night with another girl to decide who is worthy of becoming his wife. It's depraved. It's depraved. It's just wrong. And here we go. If we look at verse 14, we can see what happens to Esther. And I just want to focus in on some of the language here. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms. And the next morning, she was brought to the second harem, where the king's wives lived. There, she would be under the care of Shashgaz, another of the king's eunuchs. She would live there for the rest of her life never going to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. And in verse 13, there's just one little tiny word. It's the word choice, and it's so cleverly placed there. It says this, when the time came for her to go into the king, she was given her choice of whatever clothing and jewelry she wanted to enhance her beauty. The word choice just slipped into the narrative because this is a woman who had no choice. She was taken, she was brought, she was under. She was stuck there, imprisoned for the rest of her life, only summoned when she was wanted and when something was wanted from her. And her only choice in all of this, to choose what jewelry and what clothing she wanted to wear to enhance her outward appearance for the king's pleasure? No, if this is a beauty pageant church, then this is the one, one of the most sinister and sickening beauty pageants I've heard of. Yet, honestly, this is exactly the story and the experience of many millions of women across our world today in 2019. And it's as wrong now as it was then. But because we don't see it, because it doesn't directly affect us, I and you, we can choose not to think about it. We can screen it out. Human trafficking has become a global multi-billion dollar enterprise. It affects nearly every single country, according to the UN. The World Health Organization has found that gender violence kills and disables more women and girls between the ages of 15 and 44 than cancer, car accidents, malaria, and war combined, with poor women receiving the overwhelming majority of the abuse. The trafficking of women and children is the world's fastest growing crime. According to an Equality Now fact sheet, the sex trafficking industry pulls in an estimated $99 billion each year. 24.9 million people are estimated to be trapped in forced labor via human trafficking worldwide. And 71% of victims are women and girls. Women and girls account for 99% of the victims in the commercial sex industry, and pr prosecution rates remain alarmingly low. 
I saw this quote on Facebook and it really hit me. You see, often in our beautiful bubble of a church culture that believes passionately about men and women working in partnership together, women being empowered not to the detriment of men, not to supersede men, but to be on a level playing field with men, it's easy to forget that this is still a live issue for women across the world and women in our nation and women in certain church cultures in this nation too. And when people ask me, Nikki, why are we still banging this drum? Come on. What about, you know, this isn't even relevant to where we're at anymore. I want to tell you this is, this is the thing that inspires that question. It's privilege. And we're all privileged in different ways, okay? So I'm not aiming that at any other individual. I am hugely privileged. I've never had to question whether I had the right to step into a leadership role. I am so blessed. I'm so blessed. But privilege is when you think something is not a problem because you're not affected by it personally. And the truth is, you just can't understand the thing. You can't understand it. I'm never going to be able to understand what it's like for my brothers and sisters who are persecuted as a result of the color of their skin, who are discriminated against every time they go for a job or when the, a police car drives by and pulls them over just because they've been spotted in a certain way. I can't understand that. I'm privileged. But it's a problem that I need to be aware of. And actually, it's a problem that I need to be advocating for. It's not enough for me to say there's not an issue in 2019. Surely racism doesn't exist. Come on, let's wake up, church. This matters. It matters. And then, of course, this is a book that is so clearly all about silence. Silence and powerless, powerlessness go hand in hand. Vashti is silenced. Esther is silenced. And one of the things that I heard as I sat in the Global Women's Leaders Consultation is that actually women have been silenced throughout history. Their contribution has often been erased. Their stories have been rewritten. And it's another deafening silence. Think about Katherine Johnson. Has anyone seen the film Hidden Figures? Katherine Johnson, incredible, incredible woman, brilliant mind. And yet, she tells the story of how women weren't even, who did the work, they did all the calculations, but when they handed that work in to their boss, their name was taken off. They weren't allowed to put their name to credit the work that they had done. And so it was this self-perpetuating problem that women could never, ever get into any of the more senior positions because they were never given any credit. And there was a forced change when it came to her because her boss was under pressure and he was, he was getting from the head boss, like, we need this now, we need this now. And eventually, he had to just fess up that she had been doing all the work. And she finally was given a level of credit for what she'd been doing. There was a wonderful lady that I met called Gina Zerlo, and she's a researcher, she's a scientist. And she told a story about how in her academic life, she's just always wanted to run with the boys. So she has never felt called to advocate for women's issues or to research that because she felt it would be seen as a pigeonhole for her as a woman in the academic arena. And I understand why. So she said, I just wanted to run with the boys. So I've just, I put this to one side. And then she said that across her desk came a project and it was to do with the 
Christian encyclopedia um, of, I think it's the encyclopedia of Christian history. I might have that slightly wrong, but that's the gist, okay? So it's documenting church history over the years. And she said that she read the entire encyclopedia and there was not one woman's name in that entire book. And at that moment, she went, not on my watch, not on my watch. And she has dedicated three years to her life, of her life to researching women who have made a contribution to the church globally um, over the years. And she is one person by one person re-entering the women who have been erased from church history. Wowzers! But the book of Esther is an encouragement to us because although there is a lot of silence, what we can sense everywhere in the book that God's eye is not on the glorious king of kings, Xerxes. God's eye is on the marginalized. God's eye is on the Jewish people who are oppressed. God's eye is on a little Jewish orphan girl who was abducted and trafficked, placed in a situation of incarceration and sexual exploitation, his eye is on her. God's eye is on a queen who had enough dignity to stand against the debauchery that she saw around her. Esther's silent on two levels. She's a victim and has no voice, but she's also silent about her faith. And it just throws up questions, doesn't it? She's silent about the fact she's a Jew. That tells us two things. Firstly, Jews were obviously being very, very hugely persecuted. But she's also silent because Mordecai instructs her to, and she's an obedient Jewish girl. She's told to remain silent. I don't know what to make of that. I'm just throwing it out there. She's keeping a big secret. And looking on, it could look like compromise, couldn't it? It could look like compromise. What? You're a Christian. And you had an opportunity when you were on TV and you had your moment of celebrity and you didn't mention God and you didn't thank him. Thank him. Might look like compromise to us if we were looking and judging somebody else. But Esther was strategically placed in an environment and whatever our judgments may be on whether she chose to speak out or she didn't, God still used her. I don't know what to make of that. I don't have the answers. I'm just throwing it out there. But there's another massive silence in this narrative, and it's so important. You see, God is not spoken about at all in the book of Esther. His name is not there. And God does not speak at all in the book of Esther either. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? And it raises questions. Is God complicit? In his silence? Does that mean that he endorses this patriarchal culture in which women are pawns and possessions and property? Good question. Does he not care? Why does God seem to stay silent when we see such terribly unjust things in our world? And yet God's traces and fingerprints are everywhere in the book of Esther. They're in the way that Xerxes and Haman, the evil advisor, are contrasted with Vashti, Mordecai, and Esther in terms of character. 
They're in the fact that an exiled or orphaned Jewish girl risked it all in order to be his mouthpiece at just the right time and save an entire people group from genocide. That's our God. It's in the value that's ascribed to the ones that society has marginalized and discarded. It's elevating the most unlikely people to do the most incredible things. And we can clearly see who God is blessing and who God is honoring, despite the fact that Xerxes had all the material wealth. Never be fooled into thinking that power or wealth is a sign of God's blessing over your life. I'm telling you, categorically, it's not. You can have all of those things, and yet God could be opposed to your heart posture and the way you live your life. Those are not the things to aspire to, and they're certainly not a sign when we look at another Christian to say that they're being used by God. That is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. But on the question of why does God stay silent when we see injustice, so much injustice in our world, I want to put this across to you. That perhaps the reason that God seems to remain silent in the face of injustice is because like Esther, he's asking us to be his voice. What if he's actually not talking about this because he wants us to be talking about this? What if he's not acting on this because he wants us to be his hands, his feet, and his mouthpiece? Perhaps this is the crux of the book of Esther, the most important takeaway that we're called to be his voice for the voiceless, to speak up for the things that matter most to him at the moment when it would be easier to remain comfortable. Maybe he's just waiting for us, the church, to have the courage and the selflessness to do it. And finally, this is a book about speaking up. It's a book about self-sacrifice. And it's a book about standing for others. You see, there's the critical moment, isn't there, when the silence is broken. Haman The king's advisor has this strategy to eradicate all of the Jewish people because he is so annoyed that Mordecai will not bow down and revere him. And he gets so angry that he devises this entire strategy and he wants the king to sign off and the king is happy to sign off. He just doesn't care, doesn't care about a whole people group, you know, doesn't matter to him. Everything for him is about his senses, but he doesn't have a lot of common sense. And then there's this powerful moment in chapter 4, verse 1, where at last, it's like the whole book has been leading up to this point, the silence is finally broken. When Mordecai learned what had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. Can you just imagine it? Over the sound waves where there's been silence surrounding this whole thing, all of a sudden there is this loud wail. It's the heart cry for justice. It's the absolute deep awareness that this matters, that this is a situation of life and death. And then... Others join in the justice song. As news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept, and they wailed. 
this sound of distress, this sound of the oppressed, this sound of the heart cry of God for a people who are about to be exterminated from the face of the planet. The silence is broken. And Mordecai sends word to Queen Esther. And he says, you've got to do something. You've got to do something about this. You've got to go and talk to the king. To become aware of an issue is to become involved. I'm going to say that again. To become aware of an issue is for us to become involved. Because the moment we become aware, we are somehow involved. That doesn't mean that we have to do something about everything. But it definitely does mean that it's not enough for us to be aware and do nothing. Mordecai urges her to do something about what she now knows. To advocate for justice, to advocate for her people. To use her relative privilege, and honestly we've heard about her life. She wasn't in a privileged position at all. But she had access to a powerful man. To request justice for her people. And Esther says this in verse 11. The whole world knows that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him in more than a month. She knows it could cost her her life. In fact, from where she sits, it's almost certainly going to cost her her life. We have the benefit of knowing the end of the story, but if she hasn't been called for in more than 30 days, you can be pretty sure that Xerxes has got fed up with her. He's not interested. There's nothing about her that he needs right now. And so for her to cross that line and to put herself forward, risking death, it was enormous, absolutely enormous. And you can feel her kind of swallowing in that moment and going, fear, intimidation, and then Mordecai says this powerful, powerful phrase. Don't think for a moment that you will escape there in the palace while all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place. I love his faith. But you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say but that you have been elevated to the palace for such a time as this. She asks all the Jews to fast for three days. And that's really important because it tells you everything about her character. That she knows she can't do this without God. And even though God isn't directly mentioned, he's there. He's present. He's being called upon. But in verse 16, she then says this. Though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I am willing to die. Have you ever wondered why you and I were born into this culture at this time with the privilege that we have been given? What if it's to break the silence? What if it's to speak out, to speak up and to stand up for others? You see, Esther, despite her terrible background 
and her horrific experience in life, despite the fact that she was the least of the least, serving a system that exploits and silences women. She had more reason than any one of us to stay silent, to keep her nationality a secret, and to not get involved. But she chose to risk her life. She chose to break the law. Ooh, how do we feel about that? Hang on a minute. Good Christians don't break the law, do they? Unless it's driving. <laughs> hmm. I think we need to think about that. What if a time came where to stand for what was truly on the heart of God, we were forced into that similar position? What would we do? Where would we land? There's this moment that happened while I was away. I'm coming into land here. We were in worship, and a prophetic song came, and I began to sing it out. You have been created for such a time as this, so rise in strength, rise in strength. And I'm singing it over these women leaders, and I can feel it's the heartbeat of God, and there's an atmosphere change. And as I come to the back after worship, beautiful lady who lives in the Middle East came to me and she got this out of her bag. It's an hourglass. And on it, in Hebrew, it says, for such a time as this. And she said, I put this in my bag before flying here because I knew that God wanted me to give it to somebody. That there's someone that he's raising up here to speak out and to stand up and to be a voice for the voiceless. And when you began to sing that song, I knew it was you. So she placed it in my hands. And in that moment, there was just this urgency that rose up inside of me that this is not okay. It's not okay that in church culture in this nation, feminism is a dirty word. Do you know that that is a strategy from the enemy church? Feminism simply means believing in and advocating for women to have equal rights to men. And I'm pretty sure that most of us, if not all of us in this room, would be behind that. And yet we say, oh, look at her. Oh, no, I believe in women, but I'm not a feminist. Oh, no, I'm not a feminist because that's radical. That's out there. Do you think Emmeline Pankhurst was anything other than radical when she put herself under the king's horse so that I could go to a polling booth and place my vote? I will be forever grateful that that woman would not be silenced. And no, it's not comfortable. And yes, sometimes I know it sounds militant. But this is an issue for life and death for our sisters in other places of the world. And actually closer to home, statistically, there will be many people sitting in our midst who are victims of domestic violence that we we know nothing about. And we're getting more upset about gay marriage than we are about the fact that there are people who are married in the way that quote unquote God accepts and yet are being abused day after day. Church, this matters. It matters. Come on. We have to. We have to stand up for this. And so as I took this away, and I know that it's for me, but God began to talk to me about the fact that it's not for me. This is for us. You see, for years, Pete and I have been passionate, long before we ever led this church, about a sound being released from this place. Chelmsford is the birthplace of radio. There is a mandate for a message to be transmitted to the ends of the earth. I am a TV aerial. I'm not a princess. 
I am. God knew. But you and I, we're called to be the same. And as this church, what if, what if the sound that God wants to release is not a sound of more goosebumps, please, Lord, but a sound of there are people dying and we're not okay with that. There are people who are not yet on the level playing field and we're not okay with that. What if that's our sound, church? It might not make us popular. I don't care. Because this is in line with the heartbeat of God. And so as I came away... I offered to write a spoken word. I've never written one before. It was a bit of a dangerous thing to do. I don't really know why I did it. I offered to write a spoken word to capture some of the issues that I heard around the table. And there are so many more that I wanted to highlight today. If you want to know more, if enough of you want to know more, then I would love to gather us as a church and just talk some more about some of the things that highlight some of those things across the world um, that our sisters are facing. But there were some threads in particular that tugged at my heartstring, and I felt that it was important that over social media, an awareness is raised for what is happening to women. And we worked on a document that will go to decision makers, you know, heads of organizations and big companies and churches and church networks, and that's great. It was groundbreaking stuff. But on a grassroots level, something needed to emerge too. And it's not finished yet. We only filmed on Thursday. But I want to play you what we have so far, the non-finished, the non-finished article, because I feel like this will grab your heart in a way that nothing else probably that I've said will. Because it's the cry, it's the voice of all those women who are silenced across the world. And we've used people, amazingly, from within Skylark for absolutely all of it. And it wasn't intended that way. But I think that's God too. Rachel Maddox took that little prophetic refrain that I brought her and has composed the most incredible music behind this spoken word. Women from our church network are articulating from young to older the heart cry of those women. And the words, they're entirely my own. We're releasing a sound, church. It's distinctively ours. Should we take a look? This is a clarion call from women for women, resonating loud and clear, coming over the sound waves to those who will hear. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the woman with no sense of self-worth, sold into child prostitution from birth. She's longing for someone to see her pain, to free her from this prison of shame, for someone to see that she's more than a commodity, to greet her with kindness, to treat her with dignity. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the girl afraid for her life. At the age of just eight, she's becoming a wife, forced into marriage with a man decades her senior, a man who'll mistreat her, abuse and demean her. She's longing for someone to hear her voice, to fight for her future, to give her a choice. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the woman passed up for promotion again and again, but she works with devotion. Met by pride and by prejudice when she's at work, she can't fight the strength of the old boy's network. She's longing for the time when that tide starts turning, bringing equal opportunity for progression and earnings. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the widow, condemned to poverty, stripped of her land, her rights, her security. 
as if it isn't enough to have lost a spouse. They seize her inheritance, her income, her house. She's longing for someone to hear her voice, to fight for her future, to give her a choice. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the suicidal teenager, destroyed and devastated by social media, crippled by comparison and drowning under the pressure. Constantly trying to reach an unattainable standard of perfection, she looks into the mirror and despises her reflection. She's longing for someone to love and accept her without having to be prettier, work harder, do better. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the women in war-torn land, tortured and brutalized. Pawns in the hands of extremists and terrorists, soldiers and statesmen, their blood-stained bodies lying strewn on the pavement. The innocent casualties of war crime atrocities, they are caught in the crossfire, used as collateral in a power-hungry game where their lives are expendable. They're longing for someone to stop this violence as the world looks on, complicit in silence. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the women denied their freedom, forbidden to follow the God they believe in, stripped of the right to choose their religion, the family home becomes like a prison. Ostracised and marginalised, they face daily persecution. And if they still won't renounce him, they risk execution. They're longing for someone to hear their voice, to fight for their future, to give them a choice. Rise in strength. It's a cry for the nameless and faceless women and girls, trafficked to other parts of the world, trapped in an existence of misery and slavery. Just being alive is an act of true bravery. They're longing for someone to hear their voice, to fight for their future, to give them a choice. Rise in strength. 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 You have been created. Such a time as this. So rise in strength. Rise in Let's pray. Church, I know that this is going to, this teaching series is going to change us irrevocably. I'm so excited about that. When you have the opportunity, please press click and share this spoken word on your social media. Not because we want everyone to know how great we are. We want people to understand this heart cry and to hear the voice of the voiceless women across our world. Jesus, we stand before you today. And at times this feels overwhelming. The scale of the need that we see in our world and the level of injustice on so many levels, not just for women, but for so many individuals everywhere. And yet, God, we can hear your anthem for the poor and broken 
And we want to articulate the cry unspoken of our generation. So I pray today that you would release a sound from Skylark Church. And Lord, that it would be just as powerful at the school gate, in our workplace, in the moment where someone's making a sexist joke and we have the opportunity to come against it. Lord, at, 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 if we're employers and we're not yet paying women at an equitable rate, Lord, I pray that it would translate into every small thing as well as affecting nations and entire people groups. I pray that you would prepare our hearts, soften our hearts, and plant seeds in our heart that would bear fruit and advocate and bring about justice and freedom to the best of our ability. But we know, Lord, that there are some things that we're going to have to leave in your hands for eternity. And so, God, I pray, too, that you would help us to know what is ours to fight and what is yours to fight. Lord, I pray that this church would rise and shine because our time has come and we have been created for such a time as this to be your mouthpiece, your hands and your feet for the things that matter to the ends of the earth. Let it be so in Jesus' name.